Psychedelic Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, obese tomatoes. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Marianne Wolf, who will discuss the reading brain. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grox Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Oh, man. It's like the New Year's, huh? It is indeed the New Year's. I feel like a new spirit inside of me. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, wait, I guess that was last week, right? Well, that was all kinds of weeks. Uh, it's hard to tell. You know, time goes so quickly. It feels like just yesterday was August or something. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing how that works. Well, Happy New Year, by the way. And do you have uh, great plans for the New Year? Isn't there like an election happening this year? There is supposed to be, and hopefully it'll go the right way this time. <laughs> we can only hold out hope. <laughs> yes. So what do you think of some of like the more novel products or inventions that came out last year? You know, they're all really good, especially anything coming out from Ron Popeil. <laughs> <laughs> what about the uh, tomato that smells like lemon? That was an interesting invention. And in fact, some researchers in Israel have done that. Really? They've genetically engineered these tomatoes to smell either like lemons or roses. To get more people to eat tomatoes? Well, it turns out when they did the test with taste testers, more than half of them preferred them to the natural variety. Wow. So it looks like these uh, designer-smelling tomatoes could have a pretty uh, interesting future. Wow. One of the more notable things is that these tomatoes have less lycopene, which gives it the light red color, and it's also an antioxidant. But at the same time, the rosy tomatoes have higher levels of terpenoids, which are antimicrobial, antifungal, and works as a natural pesticide. Hmm. So it's possible these new higher up levels of terpenoid could actually mean you know better shelf life and also removing the need for pesticides. All right. Well, it's better for the environment and better for your stomach. Indeed. This was published in our almost favorite journal. Not the proceedings. No, just uh. Nature Biotechnology. <laughs> That's not even close to our favorite journal. <laughs> All right, well, maybe you don't want to have those tomatoes be so fresh and luscious because then you might overeat and become a little overweight. Ooh, rotting food is a virtue then. Well, it certainly could be if it turns you off. Uh And certainly in the new year, everyone wants to lose a little bit of weight. So one way of doing that is by getting rid of your friends. By getting rid of my friends? That's right. All right, I'm going to shoot you. All right, goodbye. That's it. (laughs) I've had enough. So it turns out uh, overweight people who have friends that are also overweight wind up actually gaining more weight than people who hang out with svelte friends. Does this mean there are somehow cues that get people to eat more when they're around people who are more obese? Well, that's certainly the, the question. This is an epidemiological study that was done in the New England Journal of Medicine. And basically they just show that if uh, you had a friend, even a friendship that was just a mutual friend who was obese, that increased your chance of obesity by 171%. Pretty scary, actually. Yeah, well, it is It is an interesting study to see how relationship webs affect weight over time. Uh-huh. And this was done by medical sociologist and physician Nicholas Christakis of Harvard and political scientist James Fowler of the University of California in San Diego. And uh, very fascinating work just shows that watch out who your friends are. They might actually influence your weight. Uh, But maybe just together you should all lose weight rather than getting rid of your friends. (laughs) Again, published in a recent edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. 
And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Professor Marianne Wolf will join us to discuss the reading brain. So stay tuned. to the Grok's Science Show. Books can transform and take you to another world, but few may stop to ponder the amazing processes that transpire in our brains that enable us to read. Nor would many guess that our brains aren't even born to read. Well, join us today on Berkeley Grok's to discuss the reading brain is Professor Marianne Wolf. Professor Wolf is Professor of Child Development at Tufts University and Director for the Center for Reading and Language Development. Widely recognized for her work in the area of dyslexia, her work has appeared in numerous scientific publications. Her new book, Proust and the Squid, explores the evolution and development of reading for a general audience. Dr. Wolf, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, it's my pleasure. One of the interesting ideas that you posit in the book is that uh, our brains really are not born to read. Ah, uh, yes. In fact, the first line, it rings like cymbals and drums in the first chapter. We were never born to read. And really what I'm saying is something that's actually very important for us to consider right now when we're in this midst of a historical transition from reading to more of a digital world. And what I'm saying is that we as a species are programmed to see, to speak, to think, and we have areas that are genetically unfolding to do all that. But reading is something new. Reading was invented by us. It's a cultural invention that is actually the basis of history itself. We would never have a history that's recorded if it weren't for reading. But what the brain had to do is something that I liken to a little miracle. The brain's plasticity allows us to rearrange our existing structures that were programmed for other things like seeing and talking and arrange a circuit among them that allows us to perform a new function. And I really want to underscore that reading shows us it reenacts the plasticity of the brain, and it shows us that by design, we are poised for cognitive breakthroughs because of this capacity. So reading is something so marvelous in my view, not just as a neuroscientist, but as someone who is watching the intellectual development of a child and watching the intellectual evolution of our species. This plasticity that reading reflects is why we are aspiring beings. I see. So basically what you're suggesting is that reading has sort of usurped areas of the brain that originally intended for other things. Absolutely. And it connects them in new ways. And then by those connections, uh, you are strengthening pathways around those connections, which then become the basis for our ability to think new thoughts beyond what went before, which is really why the book's called Proust and the Squid, because 
this generative capacity that we can use those structures and then it gives us time to not just think about the thoughts in front of us, but those thoughts trigger insights that help us go beyond. It's a wonderful thing. (laughs) You can tell I'm enthusiastic. Charles. Indeed. Well, in your book, you actually describe what you call pyramid model of that. Yeah, that's a. It was, it's actually a beautifully illustrated one by uh, an Oxford neuroscientist named Kat Studley. And what you have is five layers, each of which depicts something else. The first top layer is just depicting that there's a behavior in reading. We literally say Paddington Bear. But underneath that articulated reading behavior are whole sets of processes, processes that we use to perceive the, the, our visual processes, the processes to hear, to connect the sound of the letters, the sound of phone, what are called phonemes in our words, with concrete, physical, visual letters then other processes that are helping to elicit our memory, that elicit the meanings of words. That's all the second layer. If you want to call it the cognitive layer, the first layer is behavior, the second is cognitive. But those two layers rest on real structures in the brain. You have many different structures being used, but you have three huge areas that have to get all connected up that are parts of the brain that underlie the top two layers. Then the fourth layer is what the structures are made out of, and those are the neurons. Those neurons have to get hooked up to make the pathways and have the pathways be connected among the structures. So in speaking, all of those layers are programmed by the bottom layer of the pyramid, which is the layer of our genes. And the genes program what happens in the rest of the pyramid. So for anything like vision or speaking, it's all an unfolding genetically programmed process. But why I'm sure you asked the question is that with reading, there are no bottom layers that are causing the rest of that pyramid to unfold The bottom layers don't exist in the same way for reading. What happens is that those bottom genes are hooking up the systems for language and the systems for vision, but reading has to be learned anew with each new reader. You don't have anything unfolding. You have to learn it afresh, which is why teachers are so terribly important they help get the circuit to start getting connected. So that's the pyramid. So in a sense, the genes establish the substrate, which is later then molded through experience. Yes, the genes are helping us get all our basic systems ready to go when the environment triggers them. So what I like to say is is that we are programmed by nature to be nurtured and to cause all these wonderful things in our repertoire of of human skills to happen. And reading is something that's not programmed specifically, but because of our plasticity, we're able to take those existing programmed functions like language and vision and get them to work together to make symbols and to read symbols. 
Uh, I'm curious, since uh, the brain is sort of not a priori wired for reading per se, how did language or written language actually develop? Ah, uh, you know, the, one of the, the things that I loved about doing this book was just exploring that history. And we as a species don't know a lot about what was before 9000 BCE, but I suspect through cave drawings and little symbols even on rocks that go back as far as, oh my goodness, it may even go back as far as 75,000 BCE that people were making marks. But we really don't know that very much. But around 9,000 BCE, we started making tokens. And these tokens were in the service of other like little clay envelopes. They were in the surface of economy. So I actually think that our first letters were in the surface of numbers. People wanted to keep track of their wine and goats and their sheep. And then somewhere around 3,500 BCE, 3,500 to 3,000, two beautiful systems came up. Almost, it still seems to me it happened so fast, we still don't have total knowledge about which system influenced which. We used to think the Sumerians were first and Egyptians learned, but there's some now some very interesting findings, and maybe even the Egyptians were first. I don't know, really. But what we do know is that these ancestors very quickly got a writing system that was very beautiful. And it was, in the beginnings, it was very imagistic. And then it became more and more abstract. And then finally, about 2,000 years after the Sumerians, we started getting our early alphabets. So what I want the audience to realize is that it took about 2,000 years of time to move from a a wonderful writing system like the Sumerians to some of our first proto-alphabets. And you have to, to really think for one moment what an alphabet really is. And I know our readers take it so for granted that I hope they'll bear with me as I make them think about this. An alphabet has as its heart the idea that words are made of sounds. Now, that's not an obvious thought. If you'd even take the word alphabet, there's a lot of different sounds in that. Well, someone along the line had to figure out that words have sounds that are discrete, and those discrete sounds make up their spoken language, and you can make a symbol for a sound. That was a little tiny epiphany that probably some of the scribes with the Egyptians were the first to find that tiny epiphany, though they were more syllabic than single sounds. But that eventually became the basis for understanding the alphabet. Now, Charles, you're not asking me this, but I have to say it. 2,000 years for the species to learn to come to this kind of insight. And we expect every child to finally understand these insights in 2,000 days. That's a lot to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, they didn't have the benefit of 2,000 years of history, though. (laughs) Ah, a worthy point showing one more time why reading's important, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So actually, you bring up an interesting point about the alphabet, and uh, of course, one of the advantages, as opposed to pictograms, is that it's very abstract and allows the formation of new words from Mm -hmm. sounds. It's been a very interesting 
historical lesson for me to look at the differences between, let's say, Chinese systems versus Japanese syllabaries versus alphabets. And some of the actual prejudices I went in to this study, I became disabused uh, with. And not that I don't think, and not that I don't know that when we take an image of a Chinese reader and an alphabet reader and a Japanese reader, there are profound differences in activation about what parts of the brain we're using. There's three major reasons that, let's say, make up a universal structures that all languages use, but then there are a lot of differences. Now, I'm no longer saying what I once thought, which was that there was this progression from this more imagistic systems like the logosyllabary of Chinese, and that there was, let's say, a superiority in the more abstract alphabets. What I will say now is that there are great differences, but what is shared across all good, important writing systems is that it frees the ability to think and then go beyond those thoughts. So writing is what was profoundly important there are differences, and I would say one of the major differences in an alphabet is that you have very limited, usually between 20 and 30 symbols in an alphabet that very efficiently can be learned and used for all the words in that system. That puts a lot less emphasis on memory and visual memory, which the Chinese system puts a great emphasis on, but it by the same token, it puts a lot of emphasis on sound analysis, which the Chinese does a little, but less so. So you've got different parts of your brain being used in different writing systems. Now, one of the interesting areas that you are actually involved in is yeah, dyslexia. Right. One of the real reasons why I wrote this book was to get some of the misconceptualizations about dyslexia out of the public's discourse. Dyslexia is not one thing, and it is not a bad word, and it's not something that should make an administrator of a school quake. They should be trembling in excitement. The brain of many, not all children who have dyslexia, because as I said, there are differences, but in many of our children with dyslexia, they grow up to be Gaudi, Rodin, Picasso, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Thomas Edison, and nowadays, Charles Schwab, James Neilman, some of our major CEOs in Silicon Valley, James Neilman and JetBlue. I mean, these are people with brains whose right hemispheres are fantastic things, who before literacy were leaders, architects, builders, generals, seeing strategies and big patterns. But with literacy, that same extraordinarily gifted right hemisphere was often taking over inefficiently left hemisphere language tasks in order to read. So your basic reader learns to become much more efficient by using that left hemisphere. And many of our children with dyslexia are using inefficiently right hemisphere to do left hemisphere tasks, or more so. It's not a simple left-right dichotomy. It's by no means that simple, but just to make a 
statement that's more easily understood. They use more of their right hemisphere for left hemisphere tasks than is ideal if efficiency is the goal, which it is in reading. You know, we have to be efficient readers. But by the same token, dyslexia has taught me how diverse that brain is and how important and essential to society we recognize that that brain has to be so well educated so that it can endure a system that's not quite set up for it to be able to contribute the things that so many of our leaders are doing. Uh, is it important then people who have dyslexia to cultivate the gifts that they do have in terms of their right hemisphere dominance? Oh, my gosh, yes. We have to do such a better job in our society of watching the strengths and nurturing them all along the line. And I want to say not every child with dyslexia is gifted as such, but every child with dyslexia, every child has unique talents. And whatever they are, just know they're going to come, and we have to nurture them. But my fear, and I am going to say this on public radio as I say it to my classes, our system oftentimes isn't vigilant enough about the strengths and lets the learning cycle of failure happen. Nobody wants that to happen, but we're taking it for granted. Oh, they aren't learning to read. You know, some people don't, blah, blah. And that is one of the most unnecessary violations of a child's development, I can imagine. I came back from Arizona where I was told that the state prison system estimates the number of beds they're going to need in the future by the number of third-grade readers who fail to read. That's pitiful. And some of those, quote-unquote, criminals could have been some of our great contributors. It's a waste. It is indeed. I am curious, though, for adult readers who are perhaps interested in uh, improving their reading, the brain continuing to develop in terms of its reading ability. Oh, the brain is, is far more longitudinally plastic in its ability to learn and to increase the strength of what it does in any function like reading over time. And I'm very much a proponent of the use it or lose it. And put far more beautifully, Joseph Epstein wrote an essay in which he said, we are what we read, and we really bring to everything we read the full history of what we've read before. So the more we read, actually, the richer our lives are, and the more discriminatingly, the more associatively we read which actually is something that, I don't know if you're going to ask me this, but it has been a a particularly worrisome aspect in my thinking about children, that they are not necessarily learning to read critically, analogically, and reflectively when they move too quickly into a sort of a digital immersion-type reading where it's more surface information rather than probative analysis bringing to bear all that they know instead of having the feeling that you Google and you know. (laughs) I think that's a short-circuiting of a process of learning and knowledge formation that our reading brain now does beautifully. And that expert reading brain you were asking me about, that's a great and wonderful gem in the legacy of, of our species. 
Unfortunately, though, we are running slightly out of time. Oh, of course. And it is a fascinating topic, but maybe just to close, uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, you named your book uh, Proust and the Squid. Ah, uh, yes. Are you a big fan of Proust? I am indeed. And he said, I think probably the most important thing in the book, not me, he did. He said, we feel quite truly that our wisdom begins where that of the author ends by a law which perhaps signifies that we can receive the truth from nobody and that we must create it ourselves, that which is the end of their wisdom appears to us but the beginning of ours. And so for me, what Proust was saying is what I say is the heart of the reading process, the time to think beyond. (laughs) So, Charles, thank you so much. It was a great delight to be able to speak to some people, I hope, who will remember me in my time. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully pick up your book as well. (laughs) Oh, I really wish. It was a wonderful thing to write, and I would love to see it given away. And, of course, again, the, the name of the book is Proust and the Squid, The Story and Science of the Reading Brain. Professor Wolf, thank you very much for joining us today on The Grog Thank Science you, show. Charles. It was truly my pleasure. It was our pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And you were just listening to Professor Marianne Wolf discussing The Reading Brain. This is the Birkenrock's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Rock's Science Show. And now here's Forrest with the answer to last week's question of the week. And Forrest with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is tannic acid? Well, tannic acid is producing the barks of trees, giving it that brown color. And even whilst the tree is felled, the tannic acid preserves it so the wood is preserved for hundreds of years. And that's tannic acid. Yeah, hello, it's Herr Dr. Professor Einstein for this question of the week. You know, very fascinating things. It's uh, acids, all the time the acids, but the acid I like the most, lysergic acid I actually made. Well, what is it? If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at groxithotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but man, you, you, no, you just might see the music. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us or Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.